Hello and welcome to The Back Half, the New Statesman's Culture Podcast. I'm Tom. And I'm Kate. And we have just sent to press the special double Easter issue of the New Statesman. So we're down here in the podcast room recovering, um, slowly getting our strength back and looking forward to Easter. Do you do you indulge in, in the egg? I don't really indulge in the egg anymore. Just thinking about the Easter issue we've just put to bed, as they like to say. <laughs> it's off stone. <laughs> That's what um, when George Osborne started at the Evening Standard, he like in his first few days, he kept sending these tweets saying, paper is off stone. Oh, it's so <laughs> exciting for him to be able to use this, this obsolete terminology. So there is a food column in the Easter issue um, in which our food writer, Felicity Cloak, has recalled how last year, around Easter time, she had to sit in a deserted newspaper office with a deadline and review 88 Easter eggs by eating them all. How do you gauge how much of an egg you have to eat to, to review it? And is there a palate cleanser? Yeah. Because there would have to be a kind of, you know, counter flavour in order yeah. to be able to sample the next one, wouldn't yeah. there? But it does have some very strange Easter egg facts in it. Like, I didn't know that Kinder Surprise eggs are apparently outlawed in America because they're considered a choking hazard. So these poor children. That because don't... American children have unusually small gullets. Tiny gullets. <laughs> yeah, it's, they do. I don't know why, but they do. And the other weird thing is that they do have, when I was there last week, I do. they do have Cadbury's cream eggs. Yeah. But... They're not as we know them to be. Differently garbed. Manufactured only by Hershey's. Wow. So the Cadbury's ones are, again, outlawed. You can't smuggle them. Actually, they, they confiscated like 200 Cadbury's cream eggs in airports last year or something. I do think of Cadbury's cream eggs as a weirdly, essentially British creation, actually. I, I thought wonder, that. I wonder if they, it, it was a Cadbury's invention. It must, it must be. When you were little, did you think that a Cadbury's cream egg Easter egg would be just a giant... Cadbury's cream egg. Yeah, this came up the other day, didn't it? Because the, the physics of it are quite tough to work out, aren't they? You'd have to have a really reinforced exterior chocolate shell to, <laughs> to carry that amount of yolk. I hadn't thought of that, but I definitely thought they'd be heavy. Yeah. And also, what size spoon would you use? Yeah. Or would it be like a shared experience that people would dig in Communal, lots of different spoons? Which in, in many ways would speak to the just the kind of religious festivities of Easter. Yeah, it'd be a much more invitive way of consuming. Yeah. Invitive. <laughs> Just made up a word. Egg-vitive. Egg <laughs> so anyway, we've got like, memo, memo too much to, to say about Easter by the looks of it. <laughs> Elsewhere on this podcast, if you've made it through this far, I will be talking to our deputy editor, Helen Lewis, about... Alex Garland's new film, Annihilation, which has uh, just come out on Netflix, a, a really uh, disturbing and quite interesting science fiction film. Kate, you're going to tell us about your life-changing experience meeting um, two unlikely collaborators. Mm. Let's, let's, <laughs> leave, let's leave it at that. <laughs> so, Kate, you recently spent a couple of days as a... Uh, a legal alien uh, in New York. <laughs> you see where I'm going with this. Um, why were you there and who were you meeting? I was meeting Rock's oddest collaboration in a while, which uh, a lot of people will already be aware of because it's kind of been, as they like to say now, teased to the public <laughs> um, via the Grammys and various other things. Sting and Shaggy have made an album that is out on April the 20th. It's a strangely titled album. It's called 44 slash 876. 
I think. It's the obvious choice, really. It's the obvious <laughs> choice. It, re- it refers to their postal codes from their original birth countries. Their, f- their telephone codes, doesn't Sorry, it? Sorry, their yeah. telephone codes. Yeah. yeah, the dialing codes. Right. Sting's last rock album was called 57th and 9th. Okay. So there's a theme going on, a numerical theme. And Sting is quite mystical, so maybe these. I wonder. Yeah, else. has he has he gone into some numerological realm mm. like the book about the Wu Tang Clan, where everything oh, yeah. they had to do with the album was to do with the number nine? Quite possibly, but we haven't been let in on no. this this okay. part of the mystery. Um, so, how did this come about? In a very ordinary way, which is that Shaggy's A and R man in the 1990s is now Sting's manager. Right. So last summer, this guy sent Sting a little unfinished song by Shaggy called "Don't Make Me Wait." And Sting riffed on it. And, you know, this, this is the point where in all these collaborations, you kind of try to understand exactly what happened. Then you think it doesn't really matter because the fact is that they made an album. So yeah. you're like, who laid down the tracks first? Who vibed? Who gave the structure? It's like, actually, no, it's all meaningless. They've made this album yeah. that is a strange mixture of kind of reggae and rock, but it's also got a lot of Sting Stingness in it. So it's got very melodic songs with strange time signatures and, and jazzy moments and stuff. And then you've got kind of Shaggy doing his raggo barking over the top. It's almost interestingly odd. It's not just a kind of pop, like light, sunshiny pop album. It's so bizarre that it's kind of worth giving a, a spin. Um, there's a song called Crooked Tree in which Sting plays a Englishman convicted of grand larceny, felony, murder, human trafficking and theft. And he gets Shaggy to play this Jamaican judge with a wig and a big gavel who, like, barks guilty as charged at him and sends him down to prison. So it's, it's like that weirdness, you know? It's not just pop songs. Some but. weird sort of fancies being played mm, out. <laughs> mm, very strange. So I went to meet them in New York. I've been trying to get Sting for the magazine for years because I like Sting. But he's hard to pin down for interviews, and this seemed to be the, the opportunity. And I went along to Sting's management office, which is in 15 Central Park West, which is one of those legendary Manhattan buildings that's sort of, it's almost like entering something out of vanilla sky. You know, the doors open for you. There's no one around. The two doormen at the end of the hall know that you're coming Everyone smiles at you. They say, you'll see three elevators. Take the elevator on the right. Do not take the other two. (laughs) Go up to the sixth floor. You go up to the sixth floor, total silence. High ceilings, no furniture, no oil paintings, nothing, no sound, no humans. Walk along a big corridor and then you hear the sound of staggy and shing (laughs) (laughs) laughing behind closed doors. um, And that's where it took place. And what were they like in 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 person? Have you had you you hadn't met Sting before then? No, I met Shaggy on the way to the toilet in this strange building. Um, and Shaggy is uh, Shaggy is a character. Yeah, his name is Orville R. Burrell, and he's got a New York accent, and he's quite quiet and uh, quite thoughtful, and he's wearing this sort of super red shiny bomber jacket with this uh, baseball cap turned to one side. He's just dressed like a cartoon rapper, basically. And what I didn't realise until you until you came back from this thing is that Shaggy is literally taken from Scooby Doo. Yeah, it? The that's name. all. Yeah, so yeah. cartoon, you know, from from the from the very beginning. Yeah, just like from the age of twelve, and Sting came from the age of seventeen. He used to wear a black and white striped yellow and black hoodie when he was playing jazz bass in a big band in Newcastle and that stuck but apparently he had quite a waspish personality when he was a youth as well and even his mother called him Sting so <laughs> so actually there's a great sort of gorilla style cartoon spin-off of this in which um, Sting is a sort of um, 
grumpy bumblebee and um and shaggy is a is a dog is a dog uh, <laughs> it's a scooby-doo style dog and they go on go on adventures an enthusiastic puppy kind yeah. of character <laughs> and it was a bit like that in the thing i mean shaggy's very kind of easy lots of eye contact legs thrown open wide at this boardroom table kind of you know chatting away and sting is much more sort of brooding and um, complicated. He has a complicated face. He always looks mm. deep in thought. He's looking off into the middle distance. He doesn't make that much eye contact. And um, I think maybe finds journalists just intrinsically annoying. So you really have to kind of show that you have researched properly and that you like his music and mm. all this kind of thing to try and bring him out. But um, yeah, it was a, it's a, like physically quite a strange collaboration as well. He still looks kind of amazing, right? He's in his, what, late 60s? Yeah. 67 or something? 67, I think, yeah, um, peroxided. And, you know, still wearing these kind of um, uh, cut-off T-shirts and, you know, very, like, well-defined torso, <laughs> still bleached, bleached blonde hair, you know. It's, yeah, Lots it's, of time in the gym, I think. Yeah. There's a video for their song, Don't Make Me Wait, where they're kind of riding around on motorbikes in Jamaica, which is, is quite funny. But that song in itself, it's so kind of unreconstructed. It's like a classic, you know, girl, you know, getting the girl into bed song. Yeah. Don't, I don't. I don't want you to feel like I'm rushing you, but don't don't make me wait. That's this. <laughs> Sting. <laughs> Sting comes in and tries to do the sort of sensitive sensitive bit, but actually it's just a sort of weirdly passive aggressive and creepy. When they did this on the Grammys, and everybody was quite shocked um, for various political reasons, like you know, younger artists didn't get a chance to play, but these two guys giggled, yeah. didn't. Nobody knew about the collaboration, yeah. so what the hell was this? But. Even the segue was interesting because Sting was doing Alien, well, um, Englishman in New York, yeah. which is, of course, an extremely complex song about yeah. a homosexual personality, like the, the glory of a kind of homosexual personality and all its depth and breadth and bravery and all that. You see, kind of thing. I have to say, in my absolute ignorance, I didn't know that the song had that sp- yeah. specificity of meaning. So, what is the song actually about? So, Quentin Crisp was uh, one of the, uh, he had a lot of mentors in the 80s, Sting, older people, including Gil Evans and various right. other um, musicians that he befriended. And Quentin Crisp was one of the guys that he used to have lunch with. And, mm. and Crisp was just fascinated by the idea that you could be an alien in New York. And mm. he said the, the actual words to him, he said, I'm, a la- I'm an alien, I'm a legal alien. And he fantasized about um, committing a crime at the age of 85 to see if he'd actually be sent down for it. So that's what fed into the song. But Sting was doing a lot of like Jungian theory at that time. And he was interested in the idea of the kind of um, hermaphroditic soul in art, Bowie, Boy George, and the kind of great depth of that sort of personality. So it's one of his best songs because it's there's so much going on in there, mm. but it's also just a really great pop song. Yeah, and that's why it was so funny when it kind of segued into this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this kind of light, should we call it a light song? Don't make me wait. And everyone was a bit baffled, but you know, he said he performed it because of the ludicrous idea of anyone being an alien in you know Trump's New York. Yeah, kind of thing, so. yeah. That's the, uh, the the modern subtext of it. So I know it's it's no there's no mileage in kind of working out exactly how the collaboration works, but I'm trying to make sense of where these guys are in their respective careers. Like, who is giving who a leg up, or are they both slightly out in the cold and looking for a way back in? Or? I can see maybe that that it's working for both of them in, in, them in a certain way. Shaggy's actually been on the circuit ever mm. since he had his big hits, doing loads and loads of collaborations. He's all over the world all the time collaborating with different sort of dance and reggae people and lots of them are not known to us. They're yeah. not names we'd recognise. But he obviously keeps working. He's right. not just sitting there counting his, his pennies. Although the guy must have a lot of pennies because one of the amazing facts about Shaggy is that I think his fifth album, which It Wasn't Me, was from, 
actually his fifth record actually outsold Bob Marley's legend. Wow. So even though he's a joke reggae star, he was commercially enormous. He doesn't need to work if he doesn't want to. And for Sting, I guess he was at the right time in in terms of CD sales as well. That kind of mid to late nineties time where where you know you could just shift a hell of a lot of units. Yeah, exactly. And then he came that there was loads of kind of um, as we were thinking the other day about how a great collaborator on it wasn't me would have been Craig David singing the younger man's part because it was still in that same vein of like millennial cheeky shagging songs kind of thing. Um, And for Sting, Sting's last rock record, fifty seventh and ninth didn't critically do that well and he's he made this prediction in 1987 that his personal tastes and commercial you know commercial reception would part ways and that has just been happening steadily for the last like 15 20 years he does all sorts of bizarre things like the musical about shipbuilding that's currently going around the UK classical projects lute music and mm, stuff mm. so if he does want to get a kind of a little foot back in the pop chart in some respect this this makes sense but I have to say, I do love the way on this record that they've tried to like really sell the concept of this collaboration. You know, the the cover is the two of them on their motorbikes, which you mentioned, and they're really pushing the idea that they're they're bezies, basically. This is this sort of long lost bromance. <laughs> the bromance, and and you know, they've kind of laid out the concept behind the the record in the in the first the first song four four eight seven six. Sting sings, "I'm trying to free my mind and live a life stress free." but the politics of this country are getting to me. I think we can all sympathise with that. I have a dream that I'm swimming in the Caribbean Sea and that my good friend Shaggy is saying, come spend some time, family. <laughs> it's brilliant. This so is the, it kind of yeah. captures the whole thing in this sort of That's the thing. It's weird the meeting of pen pal <laughs> relationship. <laughs> the meeting of these two strange people, but within Jamaica as well. Yeah. So it's not even really... I mean, there's a song called Dreaming in the USA about the American dream and the importance of multiculturalism and everything. Sting's very insistent that political messages should be veiled. But Shaggy the other night on James Corden's show did an amazing elaborate parody of the Russia investigation playing Trump. And every time, like so this bit, James Corden goes, can we talk about the P-tape? And Trump goes, it wasn't me. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then James Corden says something like, our mouths are agape. And Shaggy goes, it wasn't P. <laughs> so it's like he's quite, he's much more out there politically, which is bizarre because Sting was always very political. But in terms of the bromance, I did, I asked them a very kind of, silly question at the end of the interview where I said you know is there anything that Shaggy would like to ask Sting that he doesn't know and Sting just didn't like that at all <laughs> he just looked really grumpy and he went I don't I don't think there's anything we don't know about each other <laughs> it just collapsed the idea that they've kind of each plumbed the depths of each other's souls and uh, during the course of making this record it's, it's kind of unconvincing <laughs> I have to say, um, I really warmed to Shaggy throughout this throughout this interview, not least for his suggestion that the way you defeat ISIS is by playing them Shaggy music, um, because they'll be so preoccupied with the the idea of having a good time, listening to reggae, and and um, getting with girls that that they will just stop whatever they're doing. You can't Down cut people's heads and, off, yeah. basically, if you're listening to Shaggy music. <laughs> so Shaggy was in the military. Yes, and he was a is it lieutenant. He was twice demoted in rank for attendance because he used to nip off from uh, the camp in Virginia to Brooklyn to do reggae nights. So he was never very committed as a soldier, but he was in Operation Desert Storm. He was sent to Operation Desert Storm and he worked as a cannon cocker. Um, So he was over there for a few months. And this is like very much part of his story in America Mm. that he's like one of these military guys. So 
there is a quite a touching thread between them in terms of their backgrounds that Sting was obviously son of a milkman, alienated from his family by the 11 plus, he always said, uh, always trying to please his father with his accomplishments and achievements and then desperately wanted to escape his Wall's End road in the shadow of the shipbuilding, um, the slipway, wanted to get rich, wanted to get famous, wanted to get out of there. Very American attitude mm. towards class and roots and everything, even lost his accent. And meanwhile, you have Shaggy, whose mother was an illegal immigrant who left Kingston, Jamaica, lived in Brooklyn, worked as a medical secretary, saved up enough money to bring him over from where she'd left him with his grandmother and kind of wanted a very good start for him as well in that respect. So he, they're both sort of, they're both done good, mm. um, but they're literally the American and British ways of, of escaping kind of poorer roots in a way. And we can't really cope with that. In Britain, we can't really cope with that American approach to that, that sort of unembarrassed pursuit of fame and wealth, can we? I think you think of all those, the the stings and bonos of this world, and we just, we recoil so much at the kind of, the idea of pomposity. And, you know, I was thinking about it even when we were talking the other week about Jarvis and, and Michael Jackson at the Brits, you know, it's a part of our national character that we're, we're quite proud of in a way, but mm. we just... Um, it's tough on these poor old, poor old guys. <laughs> there was, the, you know, this sort of level of rock aristocracy in the 80s that a few of them believed that if they had made millions of pounds, they might be able to put some of it into charitable causes, Yeah, which is not actually that bad if you think about yeah. it. And they uh, spearheaded campaigns. So, of mm. course, Sting did his Rainforest campaign, which I knew of him before I knew his music. It was so powerful mm. being a little kid in the 80s, knowing that the rainforest was being destroyed and that this kind of weird man with the blonde hair who sang the songs was trying to save it. He did save an area the size of Belgium, but he was the piss was ripped out of Sting kind of very early on in the music press from the moment that he became involved in the Rainforest campaign because mm. it's it's sort of stepping outside your box. Who are you to do that? Sing your songs. Yeah. Sing about your roots. Yeah. Don't change your accent. You know. So in a way, he's like a he's a, a concoction of everything the music press didn't like, even to the fact that he kept changing his musical styles, and he would go classical and he would go jazz. And they don't like that. But it's kind of, it's it's changed now in all sorts of ways. Not least you talk about the music press, which, you know, given mm. that we've just seen the, the final end of the NME um, just recently, you know, Sting was operating at, at the time you're talking about um, in a period where there was a really healthy, active weekly music press. And, that, and because, you know, the NME was quite um, gobby and iconoclastic, it was sort of their job in the way to to kind of puncture mm. the egos of these of these people you can kind of see you can kind of see why why they'd take that stance yeah it was it's very extreme i mean he did a lot of uh, stuff with the press in the 80s and 90s i mean he was very open towards them coming on holiday with him to italy for 5 days <laughs> or you know walking around central park with him and following him to sun city you can't, I mean, god taking a journalist to play sun city what, what was he thinking? Of course, you're going to get slated for that. But he would do these very open intellectual interviews where the interviewer was obviously curious about him, really intrigued by a lot of what he was saying, quite, you know, well-structured, really thoughtful pieces. And then the headline would be something like, you know, Sting, pretentious, question mark, or like the famous classic one from Q, which I don't think was ever used, was they, they desperately wanted an opportunity to say, oh, Sting, where is thy death? <laughs> was a headline and it just became like a, a fun thing to do yeah. to kick the yeah. kick sting yeah but y you can see why over the years he just shut down the access and i mean you know i'd never got him until now <laughs> it's very hard to get sting 
Whereas um, Shaggy perhaps has had less of a less of an up and down journey. I, I, I watched this morning the um, the video to It Wasn't Me, which is actually hilarious, and um, also Mr. Bombastic. And there's just one image from Mr. Bombastic that I can't get out of my head, which is that he uh, he invites one of the many. Um, lovely ladies uh, in that video to rub down every strand of hair on my chest, <laughs> which sort of implies individual follicular rubbing. Which, Does it I don't say know, those is words? Is that sexy? Yeah. <laughs> rub down every strand of hair. I think it says pom my chest. Yeah, that's my, um, there are some great banal lyrics if you dig under it. I think, it, yeah, there's another line in Mr. Bombastic, which is, Come on, girl, find some bubble bath and get in my bath or something like, <laughs> something like that. You know, it's not, it's not super... Super compressed when you listen to it closely. So the album is called 44876. And it's out on April the 20th. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. So today I'm joined by a, a special guest who I've managed to secure through her booking agent after um, <laughs> a few weeks of, of to and froing. It's um, it's our deputy editor Helen Lewis. Welcome, Helen. Hello. Yeah, I'm excited about my rider. I hope you've taken out all the brown M Ms. <laughs> and Helen has joined me to discuss Annihilation, Alex Garland's new film, which has just been released on on Netflix recently. Helen, this was due to be in cinemas here originally and what happened? It was conceived always as a studio film so Alex Garland's last film was um, Ex Machina which was made on a pretty small budget I think about 10 million dollars and it's got a principal cast of three it was filmed a bit on um, location in Norway and a bit under some in some sort of underground bunker in Pinewood I think and then this one has got a much bigger budget so it was kind of conceived as a big splashy cinema release but there was a bit of a tussle between the studio and one of the funders basically about whether or not it would, if it was given, you know, because basically the weird thing about you know these big studio release of films is they have a massive chunk of budget to make them, and then you have to invest another millions and millions in order to give them a cinema release. And the the kind of questions were: Is it too cerebral? You know, is it confusing to people that they're all women? It's got five female leads, and also it came off the back of Blade Runner twenty forty nine, which mm. had a quite a disappointing reaction. I think the studio thought that was going to be a massive, massive hit, and it, as far as I know, was only respectable. And Darren Aronofsky's mother, starring my nemesis, the chilly nipped horror, Jennifer Lawrence, which really, really bombed. Like the critics, half the critics went, "Oh my god, it's such an amazing piece of cinema," and half of them went, "I don't understand what's going mm. on." And audiences generally didn't come. So I think there was a feeling that actually the climate out there for intelligent science fiction or psychological thrillers, however you want to see this film, was not there. So it got um, a cinema release in the US. And then and I think China maybe, um, but then the rest of the world is is a Netflix dump. Uh, well, I say dump because that's how people ended up inevitably reading it. Because the last couple of films that ended up going straight to Netflix were Mute mm. by, um, which was, was deemed to be an absolute Duncan car Jones, crash, yeah, yeah, and 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 Bright, which was a sort of buddy comedy between uh, Will Smith and an orc. <laughs> <laughs> a kind of cough buddy comment um but yeah God, yeah i've already erased that from from my memory i I've, I've seen the pic the stills from that that looks yeah yeah it's sort of yeah. him stamping on a yeah. fairy yeah 
Yeah, so and and so there was a kind of narrative had kind of got there that like this is what happens to a film that is, yeah. is disappointing, and I don't think that's fair to Annihilation. I think it's it's a, I think it's a challenging film in some ways because it's particularly the last third is very like light on dialogue, like it's very very trippy. So mm. the phrase that Alex Garland used about it was it's a journey from suburbia to psychedelia, and it does do that. I think it's one of those ones that I I don't think is for everybody. But um, I I love it because it's trying to do something genuinely diff- different and something you can only do in a film, I think, which is a kind of... If you're going to make a film with all that money, you have to kind of ask yourself, w- you know, why am I doing this? Why am I spending all this? What's the thing that I can only do here in, in a film? Mm, in this medium. So this is an adaptation of the first novel in Jeff Vandermeer's Southern Reach trilogy of uh, sci-fi novels. And Annihilation is focused around this idea of a kind of slowly expanding biosphere called which is which is nicknamed the shimmer which is, occupies an area of american national parkland and is is slowly expanding outwards and the military the scientific military you know team in in charge of investigating this keeps sending teams in initially military and basically they just never come back. Yeah, it blocks all kind of radio communication in the film. It blocks, you know, compasses as well. And then you see so you get a personal dimension as well with the fact that the biologist, as she is in the book, Lena Karen's in the film, her um, husband is the only one who ever kind of comes out of this alive, except, and this is much more strongly brought out, I think, in the book, there's a kind of, well, yeah, definitely is, um, there's a kind of feeling of where well, he's not quite right somehow. Uh, it, you know, is it really him you know, what, how much has being inside this strange kind of place changed him? Well, and- I think at first you think, um, in the film anyway, at first you think this he's got sort of PTSD or something. You know, he's just seen something so horrific in there that, that he's come back kind of altered somehow. But it, yes, it gradually emerges that there might be something more substantial that is different about him. Yeah, and so, the, the, you know, I think without getting too spoilery, the effect of the shimmer is essentially a kind of um, a prism. So, you know, the light is bent in there, um, but also people's DNA and and the DNA of all plants and animals. And the image that always stayed with me from the book was dolphins with human eyes. Mm. I think just because it's so creepy about the idea, like that sort of thing when, I don't know if you ever watched those horror films in it, as a kid where there would be someone who would, like get trapped in a painting and you would see just the eyes staring at like desperately pleading. I think it's an episode of Doctor Who where that happens actually. And I thought that was really uncanny valley yeah uh, where things are just because they're only one percent off a sort of slightly you know, much much creepier yeah i think that's um uh, there's a there's a miyazaki film where there's a sort of spirit of the forest as a deer creature and he's got a human face and although he's not necessarily an evil he's a sort of um neutral good evil uh, ambiguous character but uh, that's always really freaked me out that so they don't have the dolphin with with the human eyes but they do we are introduced to the effects that this DNA morphing has has in in creatures, and um, there's a crocodile with rows of teeth like a, a shark. There are these two gorgeous ethereal fawns who move sort of together with these kind of silver yes, filigree yeah. branches as they kind of skip yeah. through the the forest. Almost, um, those are almost kind of like a Disney level. Yeah. Forest. like they're beautiful. Yeah. And then you get these, I think I was thinking of looking at living Anthony Gormley sculptures where it turns out that, you know, kind of trees have grown into kind of the shapes of, of human people. And that's one of the moments where they, there's a few bits of kind of hard science in here that, that have been that have been parceled up and, and, and smuggled through the, the script. And one of those is um, this idea of the Hox gene, which uh, 
is the gene that get, that tells sort of maps form in in, in a body. Is that yeah, right? yeah, it's a group of genes, that, and, and they cover the they, they essentially they they cover the map of how you make a body and how you stretch, so how you turn from a cell into something, whether or not it's got arms or legs. So I think they spent um, Adam Rutherford, who did the science advice on this, said they spent a lot of time having these intense discussions, and they wanted at one point to have a a hedge that had a, a mammalian eye in it. <laughs> <laughs> And wow. like, you know, could a, could a tree grow an eye? I mean, there's, yeah. you know, as those internet things remind you, we share an enormous amount of our DNA with like a banana. Like there are just huge amounts of DNA that are the same. And it's only mm. a very small part that actually really differentiates between plants and animals. So it's not, all that stuff isn't so far-fetched. And, and, and also the fact is that, you know, there's a lot of engagement with the idea about what cell division is. So cells, um, let me get this right, at the end of DNA sequences of cells, there are things called telomeres, which get shorter and shorter. They're sort of essentially kind of redundant bits on the end of the ribbon. I'm not explaining this well, but they get shorter and shorter and shorter. Yeah. And then when, if, and that's how the, the cell, every, over each reproduction, and that's how you get cell senescence. And when cells don't die, there are all the mechanisms within them that are supposed to stop, the, you know, meant to make them die, break down. That's what cancer is, essentially. I'm uh, please, biologists, do not write in about how my terrible explanations. This is a very like <laughs> layman's view of this. But um, Natalie Portman's character at one point reads the uh, Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, um, and that's a, a book about the first cell line that was an immortal cell line that was got that was was from cervical cancer cells that were in a, in a woman and that were bred in labs and are now used in all kinds of things and were vital in um, the the polio vaccines. So there is a kind of story in there as well about how death is an inert part of life and how self-destruction is something that is both something we're terrified about, something we succumb to, but also something that's kind of necessary. So all five of the women in some ways have had some big destructive event in their life. Mm. And there is a conversation between Natalie Portman's character and Jennifer Jason Lee's character about, you know, whether or not most people don't commit suicide, but most people self-destruct in some way or another. You know, they take drugs or they break the you know, friendships or they break their relationships. Um, and the shimmer is kind of a, a manifestation of that. Um, there's lots of ideas about what it might mean. Some people talk say that it's actually a metaphor for bureaucracy. It's a metaphor for depression. But in the way that it's used in the film, it's a metaphor for the fact that people can't stop themselves doing things that are you know are bad for them which is in a kind of darwinistic sense very odd right why would we destroy ourselves when presumably we're supposed to be made up of all these selfish genes that want to survive and be passed on forever mm. i mean the other thing that it's not really developed but as you say the shimmer is quite a you know it's quite a rich metaphor that allows for lots of different interpretations and just you know reading this review we had recently of a book about rising sea levels this this encroaching thing that is sort of not created by humans, but that we somehow fed with our own kind of, as you say, self-destructive urges, um, obviously made me, makes one think of, of climate change as well. Yeah, which I think the book is more, because in the book, the um, antagonist is a creature called the crawler, which is made out of kind of light. And whereas in the film, it's very explicitly an, an alien and the result of an asteroid crashing. And I agree with you, it's, it's, it is an interesting metaphor for you know, you th and and Star Trek Discovery does this as well, right? Mm. They have a they have the <laughs> I don't know if you've watched it, but they have a whole thing about these essentially giant tardigrades that can navigate their way through the universe on this sort of string of particles that no one can see. Except in this bad universe, what's happening is someone's built a machine that can power ships by sucking them all in, and they kind of go, "Who would just strip out the resources, meaning that no one else can use them, leading to the essential <laughs> eventual destruction of um, the universe?" Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm talking, of course, about yeah, fossil fuels, but you know, this is quite a sophisticated engagement with that idea as as well about the kind of fact that 
actually who you know if if we we are living in a, a world in which there is a kind of there are loads of shimmers and we're not doing a great amount to stop them yeah what's nice about this film and i think you're right in that it will it will divide people to an extent but um it's kind of it works well on three different layers really there's there's the sort of you know soldiers in the jungle finding weird shit level at, at which it's pretty effective because it's it's shot so well and you know it plays on those very kind of familiar tropes of like monsters coming up from the water and things then there's the beauty of the visual effects which is you know particularly in the last half hour this this film takes you places that you know you don't usually go you know i mean the only places the only places i think i've seen things like this have been in sort of future sound of london videos in the in the mid 90s uh, but obviously it's much much more sophisticated and then there's the kind of quite knotty thematic stuff that you've been through about you know self destruction and um and and genetics and and also the idea of um what the the sentience at the core of this is is it uh, antagonistic is it is it is it benign and that's kind of left unanswered but um I think is it is it Natalie Portman's character who suggests that you know actually it's not trying to destroy it's just trying to change. Yeah, and which is the story of nature, right? Which mm. is that actually you are, are you on the side of the lion or the gazelle? Like neither of those, uh, there's no morality involved in that. It's just creatures trying to survive. I think the thing I find interesting about the VFX in this film is unlike. Ex Machina did so. I, you know, I thought had, and I think may have won the Oscar for visual effects. What it does is it tries to make them completely unnoticeable. So you look at Alicia Vikander's character in that Ava, and she's, you know, got these see-through panels in her where you can see because she's a robot, and you believe that that's, you know, that's her. Like mm. I was quite surprised to remember that Alicia Vikander is actually a human, and and that's all painted on and in post-production. Whereas the effects in this are deliberately showing you things that don't exist in nature. Yeah. So. One of the things is a, a mandelbulb, which is a three-dimensional fractal shape. It sort of pulsates and, and changes. And, you know, that is a... V I think that's a very high-risk special effect because you're not trying to show people something that... And, and you know, and, and the achievement of the visual effects there is to be invisible. It's actually showing you something that doesn't it's exist, art, that can't exist. Isn't yeah. it? it's, a, it's a piece of visual art. And um, there's, a, there's a sort of... Ex you know, you mentioned Anthony Gormley sculptures. There's a sort of exploded corpse that looks like a kind of Jake and Dinos Chapman uh thing with with all you know if their stuff was more more aesthetically pleasing but um yeah it is it's it's absolutely stunning but it as a just as a piece of visual art you just want to freeze the frame and and take it in um, yeah I love that the, the explained mm. guys and also I, lo I really love all the references some people yeah I've, I've seen complaints that oh the Ballard references are, are not so and her surname is Karen's and there's a bit with the swimming pool and I think that there's a bit that feels very Heart of Darkness to me, where you yes. see all the previous team who've gone in and have all yeah. gone <laughs> mental. Yeah. So it, it's one that feel, it's a film that feels very literate, but yeah, it also does things that I just haven't seen before. This is mm. what I mean. That final third is very, yeah. very trippy, and this is what I like about it. I remember reviewing um, Marvel's Doctor Strange and saying it was reminding me of that Malcolm Gladwell piece about why there are forty nine different types of mustard and only one type of ketchup. And I thought that Doctor Strange was ketchup. It was perfectly smooth and blended to be, you know, like no flavour dominated. Whereas this film, I think, is much more like a mustard, right? Yeah. It's it's strong. Yeah. That means some people won't like it. That means the people who really like it will want to smother it all over everything that they're eating, mm. right? It's just, it's a strong taste. Mm. Can we talk just very briefly about Alex Garland? Because it's, it, it's a really interesting career that he's had, isn't it? I mean from his his first novel in sort of mid-late 20s, what was it, was 26, something like that? Yeah, it was disgustingly young when he wrote The uh, Beach. The Beach, which, which, you know, for for both of us probably completely 
dominated you know if you ever went traveling kind of towards the end of the end of the 90s it would be um that would be the book that everyone would have been would have been reading he sort of killed the gap year really yeah with that. or like the, the, the kind of idea yeah. that a gap year was a kind of value neutral thing that you did it, it's i think really kick-started all those conversations about kind of poverty tourism and actually was there something slightly tasteless about you know rich white people treating particularly the far east as a kind of playground where they could kind of go to to find find themselves because it's all very spiritual over there mm. um so amazing kickstart to a career as a novelist and then sort of two two more novels over quite a long period of time the and coma and the tesseract yeah, yeah. and i think it, uh, so i interviewed him when ex machina um came out and we, we stayed in touch since and I think the thing that's, that's really interesting is that actually he's somebody who really likes working collaboratively. So mm. I think he now writes things in order to be able to direct and film them and is is currently working on a, a TV series um, that will be set in Silicon Valley, although I think we'll, we'll film here. I've read, I said this in the piece that I've written. I do feel very defensive of him because I think it's very hard to make things that are this engaging and, and this ambitious, particularly within the Hollywood studio system. Uh, so I think that you, know, you have to sort of some extent smuggle some of this stuff past people. Mm. Um, and I do, you know, if you look at his body of work in terms of films, so he wrote the screenplay for The Beach uh, and then 28 Days Later mm. and then Sunshine and then Dread, which I think now everyone is okay with admitting that he basically took over and directed. Then it's, you know, and Never Let Me Go, Never which Let he me go, which um, adapted adaptation. from Ishiguro's yeah. novel. Mm. Um and it's just yeah. So as a kind of track record of the thing of the of the subjects that all of those have investigated, artificial intelligence, you know, the meaning of consciousness, what it means to be human, it's a it's it's a pretty crunchy set of ideas and films that you know they've engaged with them. Mm. And actually, on paper, those look sort of weirdly kind of disparate. But actually, when you say that, you can probably draw a draw a thread through them in terms of the the concerns at the heart of them but, and, and did some writing on video games as yeah. well and the one thing that i've never I, I would love to ask him to read which i'm sure there's is nda'd up the swanee is that he wrote a screenplay for a halo film <laughs> wow. i mean i love that game i love that game but the the idea of it being a film is exactly the same problem actually was with dread right um you've got a, a character whose face is covered most of the time and that mm. does so um God, who is it? Who's the lead? Um, who plays Dread? I, I want to say Hugh Jackman, but I don't mean that. I mean Carl Urban. Sorry, I'm right. getting my um, Antipodean actors confused. And he does a lot of great acting with his chin. Yeah. But ine- <laughs> <laughs> inevitably, it's it's quite a difficult thing it's to pull off. It's the sort of the, the Bane syndrome, isn't it? Yeah, you're like, sorry, go, <laughs> yeah. sorry, what have you said? Sorry. Yeah, so um, I think that a Halo film would have been fascinating from that point if you oh. if you do take Master Chief as a... But also the idea of switching from video games in which the idea is your protagonist because you're you, it's the first you know, first person shooters I'm talking mm. about, it needs to be as blank as possible mm. to try and put that person in mm. a, and turn them into a character. Not that action film protagonists have to be particularly deep, but it's still quite hard to do that. As the Tomb Raider film, which I saw last week, demonstrated, you know, it's just, it's very, very raw material mm. and actually... No, I'm. I haven't yet seen. I haven't seen Michael Fassbender's Assassin's Creed, but I think that's me in common with the rest of the world. Like it's very, very hard to make those things work. Do we know what he's working on next? Mm, it's called Debs, um, and it's set in Silicon Valley. It involves uh, quantum computing. Uh, I think that's probably about all that um, you're allowed to say. Mm. Obviously, I'm allowed to say mm. about it. Uh, yeah, and I think it's again, it's an it's a uh, a bit engagement with a really big set of ideas. So I hope it. I hope it happens. I believe it's been green lit, and I yeah. I think it's really interesting that he's chosen to work in London and stay in London mm. and not move to to LA. And I think that means that actually the quality of the films has been measurably different. Mm. And I think that the sensibility of Annihilation is 
I wouldn't say it's quite British, but I think it's. I think if you had a filmed that in LA, it, for a start, all the it would be much less swampy. Weirdly, right? Yeah. Although it's set in an American swamp, I just think that actually it, it looks quite. British and drizzly. There's a bit where they're camping, and I just sort of it gave me intense flashbacks. Oh, like, the fine drizzle yeah. as you're as you're trying to set up your campsite. Yeah, I know exactly. <laughs> I know, extremely relatable. <laughs> so that's yeah, that's how I describe um, annihilation to people. If um, yeah, I say it's a film about five women who go camping in yeah, the rain. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, annihilation is on Netflix now. Thank you very much, Helen. So for the uh, the latest in our many non-anniversaries, which is the non-specific cultural event, sometimes with a very non-specific number of years as well. This this week we have a 30-year anniversary, which is nice and round for mm. us. 30 years of the bum bag or the fanny pack, as we like to call it. So the etymology of this is is confusing, isn't it? But it's basically American is fanny, mm-hmm. Britain is bum. Yeah, and they were traditionally, well, they were originally designed to be worn above the buttocks. Um, with although the pouch on the front or the pouch on the, the back? With the pouch on the back. On the pouch on the back. Resting I on see. the shelf of the right. buttocks. Right. But I've never seen one worn like that. No. And they're usually, in fact, worn more near the English fanny. Yeah. 30 years ago, in 1988, the important trade magazine Adwatch named the fanny pack their item of the year. Out of all the items in the Out world, all the items. All the items. <laughs> Any item available, and they chose the, the, the bum bag. I had one. I'm, I imagine you must have had one. Mm-hmm. What For, was yours like? Well, it was pretty... I mean, I when I think of them, I think of like neon, like, you know, different panels of like neon yellow and pink. But actually, I think mine was just like a quite a boring utilitarian navy blue one, with, but with lots of different compartments. That and seemed, when did you have it? That seemed to be important. I just associate it with school trips. So mm. I guess like um, nine, ten, something. Oh, yeah, something yeah. So early then. 90s or like late yeah, 80s, early 90s. Like late 80s, early 90s. God knows what I put in it. Yeah. Um, I had a fluorescent yellow one. Right, you did. Um, okay. Around the same time as shell suits. I think maybe even yeah. wore them together. The what's interesting, I was reading about fanny packs and um, there are some fanny packs you can get, which are especially designed for guns. <laughs> Uh, they do say that you cannot beat the accessibility of a fanny pack for retrieving your pistol. <laughs> but I was thinking you have to unzip it. So if you have yeah. it in your coat, it's yeah. actually easier. Yeah. So that's nonsense. Um, they think they might be descended from the Native American buffalo pouch. And they're also similar to the sporran. <laughs> they are similar to the sporran. That's very true. And as with all things 90s, they've sort of somehow managed a kind of slightly forced comeback in recent years. Um, the Sun earlier this year had a report about however many thousands. Uh, eBay sold more than fifty-seven thousand bum bags last year. Wow! Yeah, that's that's a that's a lot of bum Who bags. Who too? The military. <laughs> the same person. Um, <laughs> the military. <laughs> I don't know, but um, this this piece was illustrated with a. Uh, very nostalgia-inducing picture of Mr. Motivator, who's yes. someone I haven't thought about for a long, long time. Yes. But obviously, a iconic figure of the '90s in his um, very tight, garish uh, lycra, and he always had a bum bag. Mm. Again, God knows what was in That's it. That's it, though. That's the mystery. I think you've hit the nail on the head. That I've never thought what people put in them. It well, wasn't his water mobile bottle. Phones. No yeah, mobile you phones. Couldn't, you couldn't put a water bottle in it. I guess pager, key, keys, Tamagotchi, Tamagotchi, pager. Um, <laughs> Like mascot gnome, yeah, ectoplasm, yeah, um, things like that. Anyway, anyway, happy anniversary to uh, 
to the bum bag and the fanny pack. And the fanny pack. I hoped you were going to say that. Let's be non-exclusionary in our uh, bum bag celebrations. Thank you for downloading this episode of The Back Half. Please get in touch on Twitter at Tom underscore Gatti or at NS underscore podcasts. Send in your non-anniversary suggestions. Go onto the iTunes store and rate us highly. We would like to thank Helen Lewis for coming in to talk about Annihilation and Caroline Crampton for editing us. And Kate, who are we going to leave them with this time? We would also like to thank, as ever, Pistol Jazz for playing us out with their wonderful song, Godspeed.